0: audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or ten thirty a.m. You know some phrases take on new meaning as you age. They do. Turn back those clocks. Now that really doesn't fit in too well with, with phrases changing as you age, but you just got to say it. I mean it's, 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 it's that Sunday. Our daughter, one of our daughters got up with, with her cousin, our niece, who spent the night last night, and they come barging into the room at like 6.15 in the morning and say, are you not? It's like, get out of here, you forgot to turn your clock back, all right? So, and it's interesting, so maybe that changes a little bit. How about, how about this one? Some, some phrases that take on new meaning as you age. Metamucil, it's not just for grandpa anymore. that? <laughs> Oh, that's funny people. If you don't know that's funny, just wait. You will find out that that's funny one day. All right. You climbed up on a ladder to do what? You climbed up on a ladder, seriously, to do what? Um, why do these headlights these days have to be so bright? I mean, I mean, seriously. I can't even see down the road anymore. Uh, my exercise today, I took the dumpster all the way out to the road. Okay, that's a long walk, folks. I got my exercise in. How about this one? How about this one? Does this change as we age? Listen to your elders. Listen to your elders. If only, if only, Jesus, his people, Jesus' people had listened to their elders. If we're going to talk about Christmas for these next few weeks, it's just it's just clear that we need to start John chapter 6 a while today, but turn one one book before that to Luke chapter 1. Because when you think of the nativity, when you think of the Christmas account, our minds go to Luke for good reason, and I'm so glad he had so much detail involved. We're going to look at Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 67. I'm going to go ahead and start on these, okay, because we've got quite a bit to read today. These are the words of Zacharias. Zacharias was the father of John the Baptist. This is what he had to say. Verse 67, verse 67. Luke 1, and his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit, that's important, and prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to Abraham our father. To grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies. Might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him in all our days. And you child, and that child is John the Baptist who has just been born will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on to prepare before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give the people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in the darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace." The most important thing that John had to say there about this coming Messiah is he would come to save, but what he would come to save people from is from their sins so that they might be forgiven. Why in the world did Jesus' followers not listen to their elders and hear that? Now turn one chapter over, chapter 2. Chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 25. These are the words of a man named Simeon. He's a man who served in the temple, and this is what it was said about him. Luke 2, 25. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit. Yet that, the Holy Spirit, was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. A little bit more about that Christ here in just a little bit. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Get this. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Why did the followers of Jesus just not listen to their elders? There was so much wisdom there. Jesus, the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Okay? Jesus is his name, and his title was Christ. And it was a Greek word behind that called Christos. And this is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word meaning Messiah. And when the Jewish people had in mind a Messiah, their minds went to a particular type of figure. Turn to the 110th Psalm. He said, we're going to do these things quickly. And I cheated. I marked mine, Okay. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It'll take you just a second to get there, but that's all right. I need to read this. The 110th Psalm is one of the most often quoted Old Testament prophecies, if you want to call it that, in wisdom literature writing. And it was quoted by Jesus himself and by many other New Testament authors in talking about Jesus and the role that he would fulfill. And when the Jewish mindset thought about their coming Messiah and their coming Savior, They got a lot of their thoughts about this coming Messiah from the 110th Psalm. And let's see what the type of things the 110th Psalm said. First two verses. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. You catch that? And then jump down to verses 5 and 6. The Lord... At your right hand, he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. All right, here's the thing. When the Jewish mindset thought about the coming Messiah and the coming Savior, this is why many of them rejected Jesus. Because Jesus just didn't look like he fit the part. He didn't come with an iron scepter. He didn't come crushing the nations. Now, he did it. But he did it in a way much different than they envisioned. Okay, Jesus was born. He grew up. We're going to fast forward a little bit. And when he began his ministry, he began in a way that looked like the king. That he was, and the king that the Jews expected. Jesus opened his public ministry. You remember this? Very close to the beginning of his public ministry, he began. He began it off the cleansing of the temple. It was the Passover, and he was in Jerusalem with some of his followers. And he went into the temple, and oh my goodness, he got upset. He overturned the tables. He drove the people and the animals out. Interestingly enough, if you look close at Scripture, he drove the people out with whips, not the animals. And he said, you're taking my father's, this place of worship, my father's house, and you turned it into a den of thieves. I mean, that's, that's pretty Messiah looking. His anger directed, was directed toward the Jewish religious leaders, but that's okay. That's okay, because after all, they were corrupt, and the people knew it. He'll get to those outsiders later. You know, crush the nations Corpses filling the land and that sort of thing. He can start here in Jerusalem, but it'll go It'll go to the others. He's looking like a king here. And that's what the people wanted. Now, turn to our passage today, John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Now, we have fast-forwarded now quite a ways into Jesus' ministry in excess of a year and a half, give or take a month or so. So a lot has happened to this point. John, What we find in John chapter 6, we call it the feeding of the 5,000. There aren't a whole lot of events that are recorded by all four gospel writers, meaning Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is one of them. The feeding of the 5,000. Jesus and his disciples, now I mean... The neat thing about getting all four gospel writers telling us about an event is we get a lot of detail. We get a tremendous amount of detail. So from all of that detail, we can see some things that are going on at this time before Jesus fed these 5,000. By the way, it was 5,000 men and their families, so it was probably around 20,000 in excess of that. Okay. So we have this taken place. We get when we put the whole story together that Jesus and his disciples are tired. He has sent his disciples out on their first kind of missionary journey, if you will, and they've come back from that very excited, but also very, very tired. So they're tired. Jesus is also heartbroken. When you look at Matthew's account of the feeding of the 5,000, you will find out that Jesus did not go to find a crowd. He went to be by himself because he had just found out about the death of that John the Baptist guy. And Jesus was heartbroken. And he says he went to a secluded place to be by himself. But guess what? Jesus by this time had already been performing miracles and signs. So the people find out where he's going and they get there ahead of him. Jesus is tired. Jesus is is hurt emotionally. But these two things do not disqualify him from serving people. Let's take a look at it. John 6, beginning with verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and a large crowd followed Him, because they saw the signs He was performing on those who were sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there He sat down with His disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up His eyes and seeing a large crowd was coming to Him, He said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number, about 5,000. Jesus took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. They gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet, the prophet, who has come into the world." Let me tell you something, folks. When we put the whole message of all four gospel writers together, we see the bigger picture. Jesus, and that, it's not like the crowd just comes and he feeds them. He's been teaching them for some time. At this point, they are hungry, and he feeds them. This looks quite Messiah-ish, okay? This is a pretty powerful thing. Matter of fact, they say he is the great prophet. Something like this is similarly said, just Weeks earlier, when Jesus and his entourage was going into a little town called Nain and there was another group coming out of the town and there was kind of a congested traffic jam just for a little bit and it was a little awkward because the other crowd, it was a funeral crowd. And Jesus, rather than pulling his truck over to the side of the road, turning on his emergency flashers till the crowd passes by, he walks right up to the head of the crowd. He tells the mom, a widow, do not cry. That sounds kind of rude, does it not? Well, he told her it for a reason. Then he went and he touched the coffin. No good Jew ever touches the coffin of a dead person, okay? You do it with sticks, with poles or something. You don't just touch the coffin because that makes you ceremonially unclean. Here's the thing. Jesus touched the coffin, spoke to the dead man, and he arose. And when the people saw this taking place, they said, This is the prophet of God. Incredibly heavy messianic implications here, folks. And look what they want to do after Jesus feeds them. Like I said, we're talking in excess of 20,000 people here, most likely. Look at verse 15 of John chapter 6. Jesus has to get away. Why? So Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. The people see this guy, all of these people, and they say this, he needs to be our king. Think about how powerful would the army be if you were opposed to a king like this how brave would you be when, when their king, first of all, he can feed them out of nothing, right? Well, I mean, you can, I mean, just think about this. If you can feed 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish, I mean, that makes it a little easier on the logistics of, of having an army. You know what I'm saying? Okay? Not only that, he can heal their sick and their wounded. Not only that, he can raise the dead. So that means you're going to have to kill that army again and again and again. Because their king can raise them back to life again. Are you beginning to see why they wanted to make Jesus king? By force? Rome? You don't stand a chance against this guy. He's looking like a king. Now we're going to look at something else. Why don't you turn over to Mark chapter... Eight. not just a reprint here okay and you understand what I'm talking about here in just a second I told you all four gospel writers wrote about the feeding of the 5,000 guess what there was another feeding The feeding of the 4,000. Only two of the gospel writers wrote about it. Matthew and Mark. Now understand, Mark was writing at the feet of Peter. So he's hearing eyewitness account from Peter. And that's where he got his gospel from. His name was John Mark. We read about him in the book of Acts. So you've got Matthew and Mark alone recording about this feeding of the 5,000. And this has led some Bible scholars to believe that they were simply retelling the feeding of the 5,000. Here's the problem with that. There's too many differences to account for. This is not a reprint. Jesus again fed another large group of people. Let's read about it. Mark chapter 8. Beginning in verse 1. In those days when there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called the disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people, because they've remained with me now three days and have had nothing, and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come a great distance. And his disciples said to him, Where will we find? Will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them. And they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish. And after he blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. They ate and were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over in broken pieces. About four thousand were there. And he sent them away. The disciples ask Jesus, "How are we going to feed these four thousand people? Where get enough bread to feed these four thousand people?" And I know what you're thinking, because I think the same thing. Are these guys really this dense? Do, do they not? Jesus did with thousand men with only five loaves, not seven, and two fish, not a few fish. Do they not remember what he did? Before we come down too hard on these fellas, it takes some of us a while to get things as well, right? It does. But is there more to it than that? Is there more to it what's going on here than just the food and the number of people? My question is, who are these people? Who are these 4,000 men and their families? Well, when you put Matthew and Mark together and begin to look at the bigger picture, what you find out is that Jesus is in a place, not his usual place. This is the sticks, okay? On the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He spent most of his time on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. He's over on the east side. Remember what happened last time he was on the east side of the Sea of Galilee? Had something to do with some pigs. With a guy who was demon-possessed who lived in the tombs. Who could break chains, all right? And Jesus healed him and cast out the demons. The townspeople show up. You you, you remember what happened? The townspeople show up. They beg Jesus to leave. They see this. They see this. Remember a sermon about this many, many, many weeks ago. The Noxie monster. They see the Noxie monster sitting at the feet of Jesus in his right mind. Having a conversation with him. And they are fearful. This guy that nobody could control, he's sitting with clothes on now, having a conversation with Jesus. And they were afraid and they begged Jesus to leave. Guess who else begged that night? The demoniac, the formerly demon-possessed man. He begged Jesus that he could please take me with you. Jesus said, no. You go home. And you go everywhere around this area, and you tell people of the great things God has done for you. Well, guess what happened? The formerly demon-possessed man did just that. And the next time Jesus arrives on those shores, word spreads, and here comes the crowd. And he works miracles among them. He teaches them. Guys, they listen to him teach for three days. Now understand something. On the other side of the sea, he's got groups there that are just wanting to see him do signs. This group just wanted to hear. When their food ran out, did they go home? No. They said, more filling our bellies is filling our soul's. Him teaching us and filling us with his teaching. So they continued to remain with Jesus for three days, even after the food runs out. The formerly demon-possessed man had done his job well. And that sets up everything that we just read. Jesus fed them. Guys, this is enemy territory. The Gadarenes, you can call it. Gennesaret, you can call it. number of different names. The Decapolis, the ten cities. Oh man, we're talking, these were not good. These were were historically enemies of Israel. Enemies of Judah. These were... Perhaps the disciples weren't questioning the capability of Jesus to feed them from a few small loaves and a few fish. Maybe they're questioning... His desire to feed them. You're going to feed them? Wait a second, Lord. Messiah work is for your people. And and feeding people from a few small loaves and a few fish, that's Messiah work, okay? That's, That's the work of a Messiah. But you're our Messiah. Why are you doing this for them? You see, it's going to be a while before Peter and company would get why Jesus really came. Remember what Zacharias, John the Baptist's father said? He came to save people not from Roman power. He came to save them from sin. He came so that they could be forgiven. Jesus came to set people free from the death bonds, the death grip of sin. So it would be a while before Peter and company would get why Jesus really came. Jesus would have to die, be buried, and rise again before they would actually begin to get it. And it would be years yet before Peter finally gets for whom Jesus came here. When Peter will be sitting on the rooftop of a fella, whose name was Simon, interestingly enough. And God showed him a vision. And as a result of that vision, Peter would go preach the gospel for the very first time to the Gentiles. Acts 10. Jesus came to seek and save the lost not only of Israel, but the lost of the world. If they had only listened to Zacharias and Simeon and their messages, if they had only listened to their elders so many years before, it would have been so much easier. What about us today? Do we get it? Do we understand that Jesus came to seek and save the lost? The lost of The world, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, He came to save the lost, the rich and the poor, the black and the white, the redneck and the white collar, the Jew and the Muslim, the Chinese and the Russian, the friend and the enemy, the insiders and the outsiders. Who do you view as outsiders? Who do I view as outsiders? And once again, we find ourselves with the Bible pointing us to two questions. It's interesting how the Bible does that. I mean, you look all over the Bible and it sooner or later points you to two questions. It doesn't matter what part of the Bible you're in. It will eventually come down to the same two questions. And the two questions are these. Question number one Am I found? Or am I still lost? That's question number one. Jesus came to seek and to save who? The lost. What about you? Everyone fits into one of those categories. The lost. Or the found. Are you found? Have you responded. To the call of Jesus Christ. Question number one. Question number two. If I am found. If I to the call of Jesus Christ upon my life have I then adopted the heart of Jesus it was Jesus who looked upon those nasty Gentile people and their nasty problems and he had compassion upon them and he fed them Spiritually and physically, he loved them. You know what compassion means in the Greek. Many of you heard me say it before. It's one of my favorite Greek words: splokna. Splokna sounds German almost, doesn't it? na It means literally in the Greek that your bowels hurt, <laughs> and it's not because you need Metamucil, all right. We call it heartache. But really it hurts more kind of right here. When you hurt for somebody. Because they're lost. Like sheep without a shepherd. And when Jesus saw him, He hurt for him, And he fed them. Question number two. Brothers and sisters, have I adopted the heart of Jesus? Don't you just love Andrew? I really like Andrew. You know why? Because he was always known as Peter's brother. Man alive, that's my life. So you Stephen's little brother? Stephen's my big Brother. That's the thing. He doesn't get asked, are you Jamie's big brother? No. It's always the other way around. Are you Stephen's brother? Yes, I'm Stephen's brother. I do have a name. It's Jamie. Poor Andrew. I mean, that's just the way it works, you know? You see it in scripture. Simon Peter's brother. Andrew. Okay, thank you. We know who Andrew is now. Us younger brothers, we know who Andrew is. You don't have to tell us. It's Simon Peter's brother anymore, all right? I love Andrew because Andrew, every time you see Andrew, he's bringing people to Jesus. And it was Andrew who brought that little boy with five loaves and two fish. That was Andrew. Andrew brought somebody to Jesus and guess what? Something miraculous happened. Brothers and sisters, who are we bringing To Jesus. Expecting a miracle to happen. We can't save them. We are not miracle workers. Jesus is. He's the savior. He's the Messiah. It's him who works miracles. Are we bringing people to him? Expecting him to work a miracle in their lives. Question one and question two have everything to do with our walk in Jesus Christ. Am I found or am I lost? And am I bringing people to Jesus?